and welcome to the Conservative Atheist Podcast. I'm your host, the Conservative Atheist, and we're going to be discussing some of the hottest, controversial, and in many cases considered taboo topics. We cover every issue you've ever considered, and several you haven't even thought of, from the unique perspective of a conservative atheist. Enjoy! And welcome back to the Conservative Atheist Podcast. I'm your host, the Conservative Atheist, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Brighter Later. Hey, guys. And today, we have a very, very honored guest. Uh, I am so happy to have this man on. I've been dreaming of this interview for years. Uh, folks, I'm not even going to pretend like that I'm not a fanboy. People call it fanboy, or, you know, I, I am extremely uh, enamored with this person, uh, I've been watching him for years. I've been following, you know, what he's been doing. And, uh, you know, I I find different clips of him on YouTube, like like I'm finding, uh, you know, rare gems. And so without further ado, I want to introduce Mr. Jared Taylor. Welcome to the show, Mr. Taylor. Well, thank you very much. Uh, golly, I'm not sure anybody could live up to that introduction. But <laughs> I'm honored and pleased to be your guest. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Um, so if you could, Mr. Taylor, could you give us like a brief, a brief background of like how you started out in your early life? I was born in Japan and I lived there until I was 16 years old. My parents were Christian missionaries. And so I learned Japanese the way Japanese do. It just happened to be naturally. It was a real gift. And uh, I used Japanese professionally for quite some time until I was forced out of my Japan-related consulting work because of my political views. And my political views evolved oh, over a period of about 30 years, I suppose. Uh, my first 30 years, I was very much a liberal and a racial egalitarian. And slowly, I moved away from those views to become what you could probably accurately call a racial dissident. And I don't know uh, if your listeners know anything about what I do for a living these days, but I run a website called American Renaissance. And American Renaissance is devoted to two basic ideas. One is race realism, and that is the recognition that race is not some kind of sociological optical illusion, that it is a biological phenomenon, and that the races are not all identical in every way and equivalent and interchangeable. It is a recognition of the fact that people of different races develop societies that are distinctly different and consistent different in consistent ways. And then the other big idea, the other main idea of American Renaissance is white advocacy. It is the position that just like groups, all other racial groups, whites have legitimate interests that uh, they must defend. So those are the two big ideas of American Renaissance. Now, now, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, I, I, you know, I, I don't understand why it is that people think that everybody else has a right to be proud of who they are, be proud of what they do, be proud of their culture, 
Uh, but white people are the one group of people that have absolutely no right to any of these things. There's a, there's a famous cartoon where it says, uh, you know, the, the Asian man says, I'm Asian and proud, says the Asian man. And the black guy says, I'm, prou- I'm black and proud, says the black man. And then at the bottom it says, I'm white and proud, <laughs> says the racist. It just yeah. doesn't make sense to me. No. Uh, and the fact is, that is one way of putting the question to which I have really no answer. Uh, you can put the question in a variety of different ways. Why is it, for example, against the rules for white people to wish to preserve white majorities in their own countries? If a Frenchman says, uh, I want France to remain French, well, he's a white supremacist and a Nazi. If a Japanese were to be asked, well, do you want Japan to remain Japanese? He would say, well, of course, you're an idiot even to be asking. And it is true for every single non-white country. And then the reverse is true for every white country. Why is that? Why is that? Why this double standard? Why is it that when a white person takes the most minimal legitimate step to preserve a kind of cultural and demographic integrity in his own country, that is hatred? I frankly, I have a a lot of different ideas as to how this has come about, but that would be probably an entire podcast all devoted to itself and all the various reasons that I've come up with. None, either individually or in combination, really is an adequate explanation in my mind. To me, what whites are doing is without precedent in the history of the world. White people who are the majority in their own countries seem to consider it virtuous to give those countries away to foreigners, foreigners who are not like them, foreigners who don't even want to be like them, and in some cases outright hate them. And then to be living under governments that consider the native population, or at least the founding population. Uh, The native population was, of course, American Indians in the United States. But we have a government today that considers white people to be a problem. The people who built this country, perfected its institutions, and made it great, we are the problem in America. I I don't have a good explanation as to how this has come about. And I suppose it would be easier to write the problems, to correct the problems, if we did have a good explanation of how these things came about. All I'm reduced to at this point is pointing out these terrible double standards and pointing out to white people just what is at stake if we let current processes continue in the direction we're going. And ultimately, whites, of course, if immigration continues as it is, will become a minority in the United States. They will not be just a minority. They are likely to be a despised minority. How did we let this come about? Again, I don't have a satisfactory answer to that question. Well, I'm sure you're familiar with Brazil, and I, I don't want to become Brazil. No, no. And uh, we're all familiar with South Africa, for heaven's sake. Oh, South yeah. Africa is almost the nightmare case because South Africa, while it was run by whites, I mean, granted, there was it was a system of considerable injustice. There was a minority of whites who ran the country, and blacks were kept out of certain functions, certain governmental functions, even certain professional functions. But South Africa was a well-run country when it was run by whites. And it was also a destination of immigration for millions of blacks from all around Africa. Because although there was apartheid and although blacks were kept out of certain functions, 
The police were more or less uncorrupt. The trains ran on time. Uh, the system, the electricity was well provided. It was a much better life for Africans than for practically any other place on the continent. Now that the ANC has taken over, blacks are running the place. Uh, you, have you, I don't know if you've seen these astonishing, heartbreaking videos of I have. train stations, for example, that have just been looted. Terrible. People are just taking up the tracks and selling them for scrap. Uh, before and after pictures of uh, uh, hotel resorts, for example, or downtown Johannesburg. The place has gone completely to rack and ruin because, and it's, of course, uh, taboo to say so, because it's under black rule rather than white rule. Now, I don't think the United States will ever get that bad because compared to other non-white groups, blacks are the ones most likely to run the country completely under the rocks. We are going to end up with a large number of Latin Americans, Hispanics, who uh, they do not perform at the same level as whites, but they do not bring the kind of real horror and degeneracy that blacks in large numbers do. But we face a third world future if we end up with a third world population. Well, I, I don't understand why the people claim that the race is not real. And most <laughs> now, I'm I'm an atheist, but I'm a I'm a far right wing conservative atheist. Most atheists are far left wing liberals, yes. and they argue that race doesn't exist. Okay, now I assume you're still a Christian, correct, sir? Uh, I really don't discuss my. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, I won't pressure on that. Yeah. So, so. Um, I'm an atheist. Yes. And if you're an atheist, and you, whether you're an atheist or a Christian or whatever, if you believe in evolution, there's every, if you believe in evolution, there's no way you can, you can reconcile it. Because, you know, all plants and animals develop differently depending on their environment. So there's no way that somebody could develop in the forests of Alaska say, for tens of thousands of years, and another group developed for tens of thousands of years in the swamps of Florida, and end up identical in physical and mental capabilities. That's just not how evolution works. You're absolutely right. You're 100% correct. And even if one had no understanding whatsoever of evolution and the forces that drive different populations into different evolutionary patterns, you can simply see physically Pygmies have pygmy babies. Danes have Danish babies. And are the differences that we see between Danes and pygmies some kind of optical illusion that doesn't actually exist? <laughs> right. I mean, this is clearly and obviously biology. And as you point out, evolutionary forces have pushed different population groups in remarkably different directions, certainly in terms of their physiology. You have short a compact Eskimos who live in the cold and they're built that way because with less surface area, they can retain heat. You have these long, tall Africans who live in hot areas built that way because they can uh, stand the heat better. You have physiological differences that are tremendous. And then to somehow imagine that the only single human organ that was not subject to evolutionary forces was the brain is completely nuts. There is a wonderful book by Henry Harpending and uh, Gregory Cochran called The 10,000-Year Explosion. And it talks about the rate at which evolution has taken place in the last 10,000 years. And they say the idea that all of these human population groups could turn out equal 
is about as likely as taking a fistful of silver dollars, tossing them up in the air, and having them land on edge. Right. That's how unlikely it is. It is preposterous. It's impossible. And yet it is a taboo in the United States to discuss these things. Now, we live in absolutely astonishing times. It's all very well to complain about the way the Catholic Church uh, persecuted uh, the people who figured out that, well, well, no, wait a minute. Uh, It's actually the earth that's uh, rotating around the sun. But we live in an almost equally oppressive time and it is less forgivable because the things that we are supposed to believe obliged to believe forced to believe are so obviously untrue unlike the fact that the earth revolves around the sun Uh, when i walk around i find it really rather surprising to think that the sun isn't revolving around the earth that's the way it looks to me whereas uh, we're supposed to believe things which are denied by the evidences of our senses every time you walk through any big city in the United States. We're supposed to think that race is an optical illusion, that the races are equivalent, interchangeable, that if the United States ceases to be white, it'll be just as American as ever. These things are obviously, preposterously, obviously untrue, and yet we're required to believe them. Well, we, we, we now live in a world where you can, you can magically be a girl just by saying you're a girl. <laughs> that's so, true, too. You, you know, that's even more preposterous. Right. Uh, as, as, I've, as, as I've often said, if you never lived around black people or you never lived in a multiracial society and all you knew about race was what you read in Time magazine, it might very well be possible to believe that the reason that people of different races behave differently is because of some kind of systematic oppression and racism. It's possible to believe that. You can make a case for that view. However, everybody has a mother. A whole lot of people have sisters. And then somehow for us to believe that women should be in the special forces or that uh, <laughs> or, or that that they they have just the same killer instinct instinct as men or that they're just as ambitious and want to get to the top of any kind of uh, corporate hierarchy the way men do or that they're just as mechanically oriented and should be getting 50% of the patents instead of 5% of the patents that the reason they don't get 50% of the patents is because of some sort of societal exclusion of women this to me is even more preposterous than the ideas of racial egalitarianism so uh, we really are believe, uh, living in an Alice in Wonderland world in which we are to believe things that are obviously untrue. Well, I, I think I think the problem is we transition from a from a an objectivist society where there is objective reality to a postmodernist uh, subjectivist society where everybody gets their own reality, and that just that just it's simply not tenable. Well, except that. It's not true that everybody gets his own reality. Those of us who see things clearly don't get reality. It's the people who are living in some cuckoo delusional world who are in some powerful position to impose their reality on those of us who see what actually makes sense. The point that uh, someone like uh, J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter books, who was a great hero to people all around the world. Now, apparently, there are millions of people who think that uh, she's just an awful person person because she thinks a woman cannot become a man and vice versa. I mean, who would have imagined such a thing uh, 10 years ago or even five years ago? Just the rapidity with which these utterly insane ideas have not only taken hold, but have become obligatory is absolutely head spinning. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm worried. I'm extremely worried because it seems like the things are getting ramped up. Yeah, uh, th- things are definitely getting ramped up. Um, 
now with especially with the transgender thing and uh, critical race theory, um, what do you think some of the things we can do to combat this? Because I'm I'm really at a loss. Well, I've been trying to combat these things, at least the racial angle, for more than 30 years. And I must say, if you told me 30 years ago when I got started that things were going to get not only worse, but a whole lot worse, I would not have believed you. I would not have believed you. And to me, the beginning of all the foolishness really does come back to race. That was really the first act of, I don't know if you want to call it faith, but the leap of illogic that we began with. And from there, we branched out to the idea that, oh, if the races are equivalent, well, then the sexes must be equivalent. And if the races are equivalent, well, then cultures, no culture is better or worse than the other. And for people who are religious, it means that, uh, well, no religion is better than any other religion. Which is absolutely yeah. nonsense. It, I'll, I'll take, I'll take yes. the most fanatical Christian over, over, the, over a Muslim any day of the week. Yes, I agree. I agree. And uh, it sounds as though you are uh, what uh, Maria Falacci, the Italian journalist, described herself. She was defending Christianity against any kind of Muslim takeover. And an interviewer said to her, well, wait a minute, you're an atheist. She said, okay, I'm an atheist, but I'm a Christian atheist, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes. You know, I, I heard, I, heard uh, I was kind of shocked. I heard Richard Dawkins in an interview describe himself as a cultural Christian. He oh. said he didn't want to get rid of uh, the, the holidays. He didn't want to get rid of the celebrations. He didn't want to get rid of the cultural aspects. And uh, I agree with that. I, I consider myself a cultural Christian. I had a Christmas tree. I celebrate Christmas. Yes. You know, I, I, the idea, I mean, whether God exists or not is irrelevant. Is, the relevance to me is, I think that religion is the, I think religion, specifically Christianity with Western civilization, is the glue that holds Western civilization together. It certainly has been for the last thousand years. And those who wish to throw out Christianity or at the same time, those who wish to blame Christianity for the loss of nerve of white people. And this is not an uncommon argument, you know. People will compare Christianity to Judaism, for example. Judaism is a religion that celebrates a particular people, and its holy days are events from the history of the people of Israel. Whereas Christianity is a universalist religion, and there's that famous uh, passage in the gospel, in God there is no Greek, no Jew, no man, no woman, uh, no slave, no free, whatever it all is, I can't necessarily get it all right. In, in, in other words, everybody's the same, at least theoretically under a certain interpretation of Christianity. But right. white people were Christians for a long, long time without becoming racially denatured and racially terrified. And I believe that the Christian churches have been subject to this great denaturing and demoralizing force just as much as every institution in the West has been. So I do not blame Christianity. Christianity does have passages that can be interpreted universally, but it also has passages that can be interpreted in a very particularist kind of way. But every institution in America, government, universities, 
media, churches have all been devoured by this egalitarian and what I see as fundamentally anti-white attitude, the origins of which I'm still at, at a loss to explain. The only thing that I can think of is that maybe we became so civilized that we've lost our ability to advocate on our own behalf. Well, Robert Frost said that a liberal is someone who is incapable of taking his own side in an argument. Right. And there, there's a certain amount of truth to that. And whites as a group certainly are incapable of taking their own side in an argument. And uh, there have been a great many of us. And uh, as it turns out, uh, many of them uh, tend to be Jewish, but there have, a lot of been, there have been a lot of people who have tried to put together these powerful arguments to explain that Western civilization is based on some kind of exploitation, that everything that we have done is inherently oppressive, whereas you know, people will blame us for racism and homophobia and sexism and everything else. We're the only people who went on a worldwide campaign to abolish slavery. Right. We are the only people who have ever really thought in terms of giving homosexuals their rights. We're the only people who traditionally did not treat women as animals or property or cattle. And for us somehow to be the origins of all of these crimes that are supposed to permeate Western civilization, it's, it's just nuts. It, uh, as I say, it's without precedent in the history of the world that a people should turn upon itself in such a deliberate and ultimately suicidal way. Yeah, yeah the, thing, the thing is, is that I've, I've noticed that when it comes to slavery, it's never talked about how the Muslims, the Middle Eastern Muslims and, and, the, and the, you know, the, the blacks in, in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, practiced slavery long before the Europeans ever became involved. That's correct. That's correct. And they That's used to castrate the their, the Muslims used to yeah. castrate their slaves uh, so that they wouldn't have any inclination towards the women when they could be around the women. Entirely true. If you count up the number of blacks who were transported over the eons across the Sahara Desert from sub-Saharan Africa into the Middle East, it is certainly as large, if not larger a number, the number of blacks who were shipped across the Atlantic to the New World. Why is it that you don't have large populations of blacks in the Middle East? It's exactly for the reason you described. So many of the men were castrated. And if any black women were taken and uh, they became pregnant, they're, they're, they were aborted or their babies were killed. That's why there is no huge, there, there's hardly any black population at all in the Middle East, despite the large numbers of slaves that were taken there. Whereas, of course, there are many blacks in Brazil, in the Caribbean, and in North America, because we did not treat blacks that way. We did not treat the slaves that way. And yet we're the ones who are supposed to hang our heads in shame and consider slavery to be the original sin of the United States. What a preposterous idea, as if slavery had existed anywhere else, and as if slavery were somehow vastly more cruel and obscene and inhumane here than anywhere else. It's just completely nutty. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's the reason why people call, in Eastern Europe are called Slavs, Slavic. That's right. It comes. Yeah. It's the root word of slave. Well, and it's also not very well known 
that the Barbary pirates and other Middle Eastern pirates, uh, mostly in North Africa, but to some degree in the Levant as well, they spent several centuries kidnapping whites from Europe. They were whole parts of the Italian and uh, Greek and French coasts that were depopulated because no one dared live on the coast because they could be taken by pirates and enslaved. And many of those slaves, some of them were put to work in the galleys. They became galley slaves. They never set foot on land once they were taken. They were worked until they, were, until they died and they just pitched them overboard. Even in port, they were chained to their oar. They never left their galleys. And we're supposed to think that people were picking cotton, lived this horrible crucified life. Well, picking cotton was probably very difficult and probably a lot of hard work, but I'd rather pick cotton than be a galley slave, believe me. And uh, the, it, many people don't know this, but the, uh, the pirates, the Muslim pirates went as far as Iceland capturing white people and bringing them to North Africa and making them into slaves. Again, the number of whites, Europeans, who were captured by Muslims and taken into slavery is probably about the same number as the blacks who were shipped across the Atlantic to the New World. This, of course, this is completely dropped out of history. Nobody is even dreaming of asking the descendants of those people to somehow pay reparations to us. Uh, it wouldn't even cross our minds. But in the case of what whites did with black slavery, that's this permanent stain. Apparently we're, have to, we're going to have to shuffle and bow our heads and seek forgiveness until the end of the white race. And even then they'll probably blame whatever happens on the legacy of slavery. I've seen videos of liberals, large crowds of liberals, kneeling down and kissing the shoes of black people. Yes. I, what I, I, literally, I was coming out of my skull. I couldn't believe it. Yes, yes, yes. I, I don't understand it either. How, how can anyone have any self-respect and behave this way? Also, uh, well, when you think about it, the liberal white view of blacks is in some respects a kind of inverted white supremacy, if you will. The, the view seems to be that unless white people transform themselves psychologically, completely left to right, top to bottom, change their way of thinking, then blacks are going to fail. They're going to get each other pregnant out of wedlock. They're going to shoot each other, take drugs, uh, commit thefts, whatever it is, that it is entirely up to us how they behave. And to me, the best example of this is the slogan that was popular in the BLM riots, which was white silence is violence. In other words, if you and I are not talking at all, we are somehow committing violence against blacks. What? What? Really? That's as if we had superpowers of some kind. Even when we're asleep, we're committing violence against blacks. Even from the distance of the grave, white people being silent is violence against blacks. In other words, unless we are actively engaged every waking moment of our lives saying things to blast white supremacy and lift up blacks, we're committing violence against them. This is utterly, utterly insane. But this suggests that black people have no autonomy at all. They are total victims of what we happen to think about them. And that's why you get things like institutional racism or unconscious racism or colorblind racism. We're racist just by breathing the air, apparently. <laughs> right.
Right. But, th- well, but this imbues us with tremendous power. And the white liberals seem to have no idea that this reduces their pet blacks basically to the autonomy of insects. Yeah, but, it, it doesn't give them it doesn't give them um, any any personal agency. It doesn't mean, no. make them as adults that are responsible for their both not just their failures, but also their successes. That's exactly and, right. The idea of this, if, if you're trying to promote, first of all, I, I think that we're limited by our genetics. We just are. Yes. Uh, you know, if you're if you're a dwarf, you're not going to become an NBA basketball player. You're just not going to. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing with mental mental limitations. So, but if you want someone to achieve the most that they can achieve, this is not the way to go about it. It's not. Don't don't coddle people. That's not when you lift weights. You don't you don't lift really lightweights. <laughs> That's not going to help you. You no. need you need resistance. You you know when 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 the Romans invaded the rest of Europe, uh, they civilized a lot of the barbaric tribes. Yes, yes, yes. Well, uh, in a way, <coughs> excuse me. In a way, we don't permit black people to grow up. Uh, you and I. Growing up, at some point, we realized that uh, we were not absolutely the best athlete or the best musician or the guy who was most attractive to the girls or the guy who was absolutely the brainiest in math. And we recognized that if somebody was better at those things than we were, it's not because he was cheating. The fact is he was just better. That's the long and the short of it. We never let black people grow up and recognize that because we say to them, are you poorer than white people? Are you more likely to be in jail than white people? That's not your fault. That's not your fault. You're just as good as they are, absolutely in every way. And the reason you are not performing at the same level or better is because you are being cheated. You are being held down. It's a way of in this mass propagandistic way, making sure that black people never grow up and never outgrow this idea that if they didn't make it to the top, it's because they were cheating. And you hear this from very successful blacks, blacks who have swanned their way from one affirmative action job to another, and yet they are adamant that they have to work three times as hard to get half the rewards. This is, this is dogma to blacks in a way that is exceedingly debilitating to them. And so if you're living in the ghetto, if you're living on, uh, on welfare, and somebody says to you, those black people are out to get you. White teachers, white police officers, white judges, white people in general. Why would you even lift a finger to move ahead? Ah, they're just gonna—they're just gonna screw me over anyway. It's absolutely the wrong message. And at the same time, it encourages black people to hate whites. And why wouldn't they hate whites when they're told over and over and over again? Not only did they did we enslave them, but we are persecuting them at every turn, engineering all of this systemic and institutional racism that's always holding them down. That we are just the most vicious characters ever to walk the earth. Of course, they will end up hating us. Well, the, the, the two things I would like to touch on with you is that I, I've noticed that, uh, you know, if if we're if, if the United States is so bad, first of all, I, I know that I know there were bad things that happened during slavery. I'm sure there were. Yes. But to act like it was a nonstop 24 hour a day, seven to w- day a week horror show. I, yes. I don't think that's accurate. No, no, it's not. It's not. Uh, you know, it would be very interesting if you've never done so to read some of the collections of slave narratives 
that were collected under a WPA project during the Depression. They hired these uh, young out-of-work sociologists to go interview the people who were still alive, who had been slaves at the time of the end of slavery. And there were such people. These slave narratives are very, very eye-opening. Many of them will say such things as, well, I heard about uh, whoopings on other plantations, but we was always treated fine. And there's one that stucks in my mind. There's this uh, old fellow talking about what it was like in slavery days. He said, we had, we had plenty to eat and uh, we lived well and nothing to my mind will be closer to heaven than going back and being able to wait on massa and missus like we did in slavery days. That's my idea of heaven. I mean, the, the, this is now, again, uh, there is unquestionably been uh, horrible things done to blacks. But the one thing that you have to bear in mind about slavery in the United States was that it varied tremendously from region to region, household to household, and even in periods of time. People talk about how well, slaves, it was against law to teach slaves to read. Well, in some places, in some periods of time. Or there were no regulations about how slaves could be treated or mistreated. No, it depends on where you are and in what, uh, uh, and what period of time. It was a tremendously varied thing. And so to somehow paint it in the blackest of colors, uh, not, to, not to be too much of a pun here, to make it the worst possible experience ever in human history is just ludicrous. I, I agree. I, I think my, uh, I, I've talked up a lot of time. I think, I think my co-host wanted to ask you a few questions. Oh, yeah. certainly. Yes. Thank you. I was wondering because it it seems like the one factor the one factor that's never really uh, uh, I guess added into the equation with blacks and oppression is that uh, if you tell people that they're victimized, you tend to not really have good psychological outcomes. And there was even that major uh, sociology study from Harvard that uh, concluded the reason why black people are so anti-Semitic is because they feel victimized. But for some reason, this can this really is a uh, something that can't be brought up. And I don't know if you've thought about that or why this is something that's seemingly not allowed to the discourse. You mean the dangerous effects on people of, of telling them that they are victims? Is, is that what you're talking about? Yes. Well, yes, that's what I was suggesting earlier when I say that black people are constantly being told that nothing that goes wrong for them is their fault. That, uh, that's a perfect way to really rid them of any kind of motivation. Again, why should they make any effort at all if the assumption is that white society is going to oppress them, steal the fruits of their labor, et cetera, et cetera? It's remarkable to some degree that blacks try as hard as they do getting this constant message. Do you sympathize at all with people like Glenn Lowry that to really try to put an emphasis on the fact that uh, telling black people this is ultimately going to lead to very pernicious outcomes for them and that to ultimately good? I have a lot of respect for Glenn Lowry. Uh, Glenn Lowry is, I think, one of the most uh, sensible black people out there. Uh, I had a great deal of admiration for Thomas Sowell. He's pretty much retired now. Walter Williams. Uh, all of these people have said much of what we are saying, namely that this constant victimization of blacks, constant sob story, constant whining, that is extremely dangerous and doesn't do anybody any good. Now, where I would disagree with Glenn Lowry is that he believes that if enough people like him 
begin to control something of the cultural narrative in this in this country, then all of that can be got rid of. And that ultimately, once blacks realize that the that the dice are not loaded against them, they will recognize that they can move ahead uh, as far as their abilities will carry them in a society that respects them for what they do, and that most of this racial tension can be made to go away. Mm, now, I think it's too late for that. It's too late for that. And first of all, those people are never going to get hold of MSNBC and CBS and ABC. They're never going to be the ones who are telling black people, look, the society is not racist. Even if you were to suggest that, you'd be run out of a rail on all of those networks. That's, that's blasphemy almost as bad as talking about race and IQ. I, I, don't think, I don't think there is any chance that we can go back to a society in which it is generally recognized that on average blacks will not achieve at the same level as whites, but by all means, let us have every group, every individual perform as well as he possibly can. I don't think we can go back to that. It, uh, that would take such a wrenching reevaluation of everything that is said about race in America. It's almost impossible to imagine. Yeah. Unlike Al Gore's ridiculous, um, documentary an inconvenient truth this is real it's an inconvenient yeah. truth it's a truth that that they that that people just can't seem to accept it's it's well, they have to believe that there's something that they can do uh to, to that there's no limitations on anybody and that's just not true yes and uh i don't know how many political speeches i've heard in which americans are told you can be anything you want to be it's, uh, as you say, that's nonsense. I could never be a concert violinist. I could never be a concert clarinetist. I tried to play the clarinet, so I know I can't be a concert clarinetist. I could never be an uh, Olympic medalist in the 100-yard dash. I could never be an astrophysicist. I took a little bit of the calculus in college, and I decided, whoa, this is not for me. <laughs> My brain doesn't work that way. I tried hard. No, all of this is nonsense. And you are 100% correct. We are limited by our genetic endowments. Now, we can, there are other things besides genetic ability. Well, ultimately, I think even our willingness to sacrifice in the future, think ahead, plan our determination. Many of these things are governed by genes. In fact, the closer you look into the studies of, for example, identical twins separated at birth and reared in vastly different families, you realize just how important the genes are and how unimportant the family environment is. I'm a father. I did my very best to provide my children with the best possible environment. And yet when you read those studies, you, you almost ask yourself, gosh, why bother? They're going to turn out the way they're going to turn out no matter what. And fortunately for me, they've turned out pretty well. But if that's so, it's really largely thanks to what they got from their mother and their father. But uh, yes, the idea that genes don't matter. Uh, for, well, first of all, it is, of course, taboo to say that genes have anything to do with average racial differences in achievement. I mean, that you just can't even bring up in polite society or even impolite society these days. But then there are plenty of people who seem to think that genes have no effect among people of the same race, that the, the guy who gets straight A's and the guy who flunks out, there's nothing, there's no genetic difference there. 
this, this is utterly, utterly cuckoo. And again, it's very difficult for me to understand why people are so drawn to this idea. Why is it so compelling for them to think that uh, uh, genetics, I, I suppose it's the, the fact that any kind of understanding of genetics these days is, is associated with Nazism and eugenics, and it's all bad, bad, bad. But it makes it impossible for us even to understand problems in society, much less deal with them. Right, right, absolutely. And, you know, the thing is, is that if the United States was such a horrible racist place and, uh, and was oppressing black people so much, why is it that black people are the most, the black people in the United States are the most successful black people on the planet? <laughs> well, also, why is it that so many Africans want to come here? Right. There are, there are millions coming and millions, millions more want to come. No, it's nuts. And uh, I used to, uh, uh, I used to travel a lot for work uh, back when I was uh, a, uh, a socially acceptable consultant in the Japan business. And I took a lot of taxis in Los Angeles. And for some reason at that time, many of the taxis were being driven by African immigrants. And uh, I enjoyed talking to them. I would say, well, you know, here you are, uh, you've come from Africa. Uh, hadn't, hadn't anybody told you that this is a terrible white supremacist oppressive place? And, uh, <laughs> people are, and they'd say, oh, they would just laugh at that. And I would say, well, uh, black Americans all say that. And I will tell you, you get African immigrants talking about black Americans, and they sound like what you would imagine a Ku Kluxer would say about them. <laughs> I've experienced it. <laughs> yes, yes. But somehow, somehow, uh, these are views of America, this egalitarian view that everything that goes wrong for all non-whites is the fault of white people. Uh, that is an absolutely unassailable truth. The book is closed, and anybody who wishes to open that book is a white supremacist and a moral leper. One of the experiments you brought up um, was, I, I can try to remember the exact experiment you brought up. You talked about it a minute ago, uh, you know, uh, putting off um, oh, um, gratification. Yes, yes. Oh, the, the marshmallow experiment? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, uh, th that's the one in which you take you take a young child, maybe a five-year-old or a seven-year-old, and uh, you give him a marshmallow, and you say, look, I'm going to leave the room for uh, 10 minutes, and if you have managed not to eat the marshmallow, I'll give you two marshmallows. And uh, I've seen videos of this. Of the, uh, the, the kid is looking at the marshmallow. And you can tell it's just he wants to eat that thing so badly, but he wants two marshmallows instead of one. And someone will pick it up and they'll look at it and they'll smell it, you know. And I remember seeing one guy had sort of balanced it on his nose. They're just obsessed by this marshmallow. And then someone finally eat it, but then some of them can hold out and they're so happy that they're going to get two marshmallows. Well, this is known as deferral of gratification. In other words, sometimes you have to sacrifice in the present for some kind of reward in the future. That's like studying for a biology test uh, instead of going out partying. That's uh, sort of a parallel. And there is a clear racial hierarchy and ability of children to defer gratification. And I believe it's reflected in adult behavior as well. Blacks are the worst at deferring gratification. And East Asians are the best. East Asians are better at waiting. I mean, some of them, they'll just sort of sit there calmly and, you know, ho-hum, okay, 10 minutes gone by, here's my second marshmallow. There doesn't seem to be much struggle at all. But uh, 
uh, the idea that somehow it is white oppression that makes uh, black people the way they are, that is the dominant thinking that's not to be challenged. The, this question, yes, again, of uh, being able to think in terms of the future. Uh, I, uh, I have a friend, uh, he's an American guy who's lived in uh, South Africa now for 30 years. And uh, he said that the idea of medical insurance was very difficult for many of his many of his black friends to understand. They'd say, "Why well, am I going to spend money on this? Well, you might get sick. Well, I'm not sick now, but but you know you, you could get sick in the future. But but I'm not sick now. They couldn't see any. They, they couldn't see any further past that. Are you speaking about uh, Philip Rustin? No. That fellow uh, was a fellow named Eugene Valberg. Uh, mm -hmm. Phil Rushton uh, never lived in Africa, as far as I know. Oh, okay. But, uh, yes, no, this, this is a fellow. He was a, a philosophy teacher in the United States. Uh, he's now, gosh, I guess it's been several decades now he's lived in South Africa. But uh, his stories about uh, dealing, dealing with Africans are very eye-opening. Another thing that he said is that Africans in Africa take it for granted that white people are just smarter than they are. If you ask, uh, he, he had this weird habit of just going up to basic strangers. He's standing in line with somebody. He'll just open the conversation and he'll say, well, what do you think? You know, you think uh, Africans are just as smart as white people? And they, they'd laugh at you. I said, of course not. We, we could never, we could never build uh, jet aircraft. Uh, we can't even fix them. <laughs> And uh, uh, the idea that somehow they were as smart and as clever, that was the way they would talk about it. And, oh, we're not as clever as a white man. He said with the, 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 the whole idea that they were was ridiculous. Now, on the other hand, you get these uh, ANC party members, militant types. They would just flare up like a Roman candle if anyone were to suggest otherwise. But ordinary black people are not fooled by this. And I will tell you something else that may surprise you. Uh, back before I became an evil person, not even allowed to have a Twitter account, I gave talks at universities on racial differences in IQ. And I remember the first time I was being introduced to the audience. And the audience out there, I would say, was at least a third black. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, <clears throat> boy, I'm not sure my legs are going to carry me to the podium. I'm going to be saying all these awful things about racial differences and the extent to which they're genetic. But then I said, okay, you know, th this is what I believe. This is what the data say. So I propel myself to the podium and I give my talk. Well, sure enough, uh, the first guy is a guy who stays, this black guy, and he raves about how, you know, I should never be allowed to set foot on campus. And this is horrible. Off he storms. Well, the other blacks asked all sorts of probing questions. Some whites would ask questions, but they were really kind of peripheral data-related questions. The blacks were really very interested. And at, at the end of my talk, they, the, the black students kept me on my feet for, I don't know, 45 minutes asking questions. And at the end, several of them came up and they shook my hand and they said, Mr. Taylor, that was absolutely fascinating. And they said it with real cordiality. And at first I thought, what the heck is this? But after this repeated itself several times, I realized that 
these people, these black people appreciated the fact that I was speaking honestly to them. It was probably the first time they'd had a conversation with a white man in which the white man about race, in which the white man was honest. I wasn't talking down to them. At the same time, these are college students. They're not stupid. They realize that they are smarter than the other fellows who never made it to college. And I found also that many black people were very interested in the whole question of whether or not light-skinned blacks were smarter than dark-skinned blacks. And the evidence is that they are. And they would all ask questions about this. And I remember after one talk, this rather, this very attractive, uh, light-skinned uh, black student, uh, one of the things she said to me, so that's why those dark, dark brothers are so dim. <laughs> it, uh, uh, <laughs> but see, they too are, I mean, they, 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 they look around and they see different people perform at different levels. And of course, it's a taboo, but they're curious about the taboo too. And I just did not realize that there would be so many black students who could discuss this in an intelligent, reasonable way, and in fact, be grateful to me for having spoken completely honestly with them. Well, I, I think that, I think that the, the problem in black society, black culture, isn't just intelligence, but it's also um, things like uh, temperament. Yes. You know, yes. you can even even if you have somebody with increased intelligence, temperament plays a large role, don't you think? Yes, yes, I 100% agree. And you see all of these videos going around now, black people getting into these uh, crazy, you know, twelve man, ten man, twenty man brawls and waffle houses or on cruise ships. Uh, I mean, those people are probably not really stupid. I mean, you can't, you're not likely to go on a cruise ship if you've got an IQ of 80. You gotta be able to afford to pay the, pay the ticket. And so those, it's not a question merely of intelligence. And I don't think white people of the same intelligence would behave that way. There's a kind of, uh, oh, uh, just a, a lack of self-control that goes into, uh, goes into it as well. Temperament, as you say. Temperament comes in all different dimensions. But an inability to control anger, I think that's one of the reasons, of course, why there's so much shooting going on in black neighborhoods. The idea seems to be, you step on my shoe and I'll kill you. Uh, that, that kind of flying off the handle, it, it's, something, it's something that is, I think, very characteristic of blacks in a way that it's not characteristic of just about anybody I know. I have a friend uh, from high school. He's half, uh, half Anglo and half Japanese. And he used to say, that uh, from an East Asian point of view, uh, white people act like drunk Asians. And from a white person's point of view, black people act like drunk white people. <laughs> right. Yeah, there, there is a kind of difference in, oh, you could call it uninhibitedness if you're being complimentary about it, or lack of self-control if you're not being complimentary. And, you know, there's there some things I like about, about Black people. I think they do have a kind of spontaneity. Uh, they, will, they will say things that uh, other people might be thinking, but they will do it in an uninhibited and sometimes charming way. 
they're just less uh, less constrained by what they see as the rules. But when that inclination to flout the rules turns into criminal action or into really deeply insulting, hostile behavior, that's a whole different matter. But I thought that uh, comparison of the way East Asians see whites and whites see blacks, and putting it in terms of uh, the uninhibitedness that comes from drinking alcohol, that was an interesting way of describing what I think is a genuine phenomenon. But of course, it's one for which you will never get an NIH grant to study. No, no well, never, ne- never in a million years. Never in a million no. years would that ever be be acceptable. No. Um, so as far as crime goes, I, I remember when I first uh, found out that 13% of the population, black people, account for 55% of the murders every year. Mm-hmm. You know, give or take, there's, there's some fluctuations. Yes. But that, that's a hell of a lot of murder for such a small group of people. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, now, the, the latest statistics would put it about 62%. And of course, if you really want to even be even more brutal and extreme in terms of your statistics, you could cut uh, the 12% or 13% down to approximately half. And you're talking or about three or 4%. Yeah. Yes. Young, young black males. Young black men. Young black men. Uh, I remember years ago, uh, I was uh, doing a study of crime and uh, I went on a number of television programs uh, in which I defended racial profiling. I I made the point that uh, men are more dangerous than women, and we understand that. We also understand that young men are more dangerous than old men. We have statistics to prove that. And from a statistical point of view, blacks are more dangerous than people of any other race. And so... The idea of making a racially aware and carefully racially based opinion about something, it's simply a tool, but like a taser or uh, a Glock, a nine millimeter pistol, it's a tool that can be misused, but it would be ridiculous to pretend that it's not a useful tool. If a police officer went out into the world assuming that White be- that uh, male behavior and female behavior are identical and that a suspect is just as likely to be an old Asian lady as a young black. That would be insane. That would be crazy. You couldn't get your job done that way. But, no. then, but then to insist that, okay, well, age might have something to do with it and sex might have something to do with it. Also, appearance does too. Uh, criminals uh, just aren't very likely, unless there's some sort of slick white-collar criminal, to, to dress uh, in a suit and tie. There are all sorts of things that a veteran police officer goes on that are sort of hunches. And race obviously needs to play a part of that. But race is the one thing that you're not allowed to consider useful information. But uh, uh, I was never able to get anybody to agree, at least on public, on television. But uh, I think you had to give them, have had to make them think. And of course, there's that famous observation by Jesse Jackson years ago when he mm-hmm. said, "Just nothing, nothing is more shameful to him to realize if he's walking down the street at night and he hears some noise behind him and he turns around and he's relieved to see that it's white people." He says, that's a shameful fact of life. Well, he was doing racial profiling. Of course. 
But later on, interestingly enough, when somebody presented him with this argument of his, he says, well, well, well. Now, I wasn't really talking about black people. I was talking about the fact that uh, it's, if it means I'm in a white neighborhood and the policing is going to be more efficient. <laughs> okay, Jesse, nice try. No, you were right the first time. Don't go back on being right. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he's a, he's a, he's a, you know, he's a huckster, obviously. Him and uh, yeah. Al Sharpton both. Oh gosh, yes, but he's recognizing a fact that anybody who doesn't recognize it and who insists that it's not true is just a fool. Either he thinks, either he's stupid, or he thinks you're stupid if he thinks that blacks and whites are equally dangerous. Well, wasn't it the the famous quote from Bloomberg when he was mayor that uh, somebody complained that, uh, oh, well, look how black people are being disproportionately stopped and frisked and white people are stopped and frisked at about 15 percent are the way to stop and frisk. And he interjected with, yeah, that actually is wrong because it should be 12 percent because they commit 12 percent of the crime on average. <laughs> you know, he, he had a few spasms of uh, actual enlightenment back when he was a mayor. Uh, but then uh, when he was out of office and uh, running for president, uh, he, 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 uh, he denied ever saying anything intelligent on the subject of race. So one, one other stat that shocked me that you might be aware of, um, per year, on average, white, uh, black men rape nearly 38,000 white women. Now, conversely, White men raping black women, it's less than 20 per year. Not less than 20,000, less yeah. than 20. So it's, well, it's called a statistical zero. It's, it's, uh, yes. it's, it's so small that it can't be put in a percentage. Well, you're probably getting those statistics from older versions of the National Crime Victimization Survey. Yes. Uh, and the NCBS, as it's called, uh, they ended up, they stopped publishing those numbers because the sample for uh, black people saying that they had been raped by whites was so small, they just could not get a comparison that they thought was meaningful. I mean, that was their statistician's explanation for removing those numbers. And as the, the way the, the NCBS works, it's a huge annual survey the Justice Department, or it's actually a part of it called the Bureau of Justice Statistics, interviews over 100,000 Americans. That, I mean, you get a political poll in this country, and if you've got 1,000 participants, that's a big sample, 100,000. That's a huge, huge sample. And they ask them, well, what sort of crimes were you a victim of in the last six months? And uh, they will ask about the race of the perpetrator, this, that, and the other. And so you find out that, uh, uh, well, yes, uh, black people do commit a huge amount, especially of violent crime. Now, you also end up getting a much larger number of crimes from the NCBS than the FBI reports because so many people don't report crime. Right. And people who've been mugged, uh, often they will not have reported crime. But the proportion of, say, the people who the victims report were black, black muggers, is almost identical to the proportion of black muggers that the police actually arrest. The police arrest figures are smaller, obviously, because they don't hear about a certain number of muggings and they don't catch everybody who's doing the mugging. But the victims say, as it turns out, that 55 to 60% of the muggers are black. 
and 55 to 60 percent of the, of the people that uh, police arrest for mugging are black, which is a prima facie indication that there's no race, no police racism involved at all. They're trying to catch the people doing the muggings. And the ones they catch are doing the muggings. Now, the idea that police racism is involved in those statistics, you know, that would be to say, I walk into, I walk into the police department and I'm bleeding and I've been robbed. And I say, oh, oh officer, uh, three white men grabbed me and did this to me. And the white man, eh, we're not interested. Get out of here. No. <laughs> they yeah, wanna... why, and why would why would victims lie about who victimized them exactly exactly they're, they're not lying about it so the idea of the police these vicious people who are ignoring white crime and going out and pinning false charges on black this it's just just absolutely ridiculous but these days i would have to i would have to say that there are no real reliable statistics on interracial rape anymore because the NCBS doesn't even report that data. But uh, there, yes, there was a time when it seemed that uh, there was a very substantial amount of black on white rape and practically no white on black rape. And in the old days, the NCBS actually uh, calculated multiple offender crimes in other words, if a group of black men rape a white woman, that would go in the statistics as a multiple offender, black on white rape. And they never, ever, 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 ever had any of those cases. And that's why when the Duke lacrosse team was accused of having raped that uh, white, uh, that black stripper, uh, what's her name, Mangum, Crystal Mangum, I believe was her name. Something like that. I knew from the start, this is phony. This is a hoax. This is a crime that just... It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. But of course, uh, the media and the Duke administration uh, just whooped this up to be the crime of the century. But uh, yep, that's one of those things that you better not talk about uh, if you want to be a respectable human being is the differences in interracial rape or inter interracial crime at all. Well, how many how many fake hate crimes have we come across just recently? The Jesse Smollett case. Oh, you know, there, there was two yes. white guys in a pickup truck screaming, this is MAGA country in yes. the middle of Chicago at three o'clock in the morning. That's right. On, <laughs> the coldest, on, on the coldest day of the year. That's the day they choose. <laughs> no, that, that's just one of the most high profile cases. But uh, as, as I've often said, uh, the demand for racism just far outstrips the supply. And so they have to cook up uh, invented examples of racism. And then the most innocuous things end up being considered horrible hate crimes. Uh, I suppose you remember uh, the uh, uh, Bubba, who the NASCAR driver? What was his name? Bubba, oh, Bubba, yeah. yeah. Bubba, I can't remember his last name. But, yeah. Bubba Wallace. Bubba Wallace. Yes, that's the guy. Apparently somebody had made a loop. Uh, and maybe it was actually Hangman's News. I never actually saw it, but it was a loop that somebody had made so that you could pull a garage door down. Yeah. Well, oh my gosh. And it was there before the garage was even assigned to Bubba. <laughs> yeah. the, the FBI sent, I can't remember, 12 or 15 agents to try to get to the bottom of this. Oh, just the, the we, we move heaven and earth every time some... Uh, noose appears someplace. It, it's as if, I don't know, five people had been murdered. I, I think you, know, you, you could have a mass shooting on the south side of Chicago that left 10 people dead, and you wouldn't have a dozen FBI agents on the case. Well, what got me was is all the different race car drivers and all the fans that did like a big march afterwards in support of Bubba. Of course. And it, was all, it was all nonsense. It was all BS. And that it was real. Yes. 
Yes, yes. Well, it's the same every time you hear of these allegations of some kind of hate crime on campus. There are candlelight vigils, there are teach-ins, editorials, gnashing of teeth, sackcloth and ashes, and then it turns out it was all a hoax. But then what the administration will do is say, well, but that doesn't make any difference because we know that this is a real problem in America and we have to be conscious of it, whether or not this particular incident was a hoax. It, uh, no, no, nobody seemed to show any, any annoyance or anger. There, there's a famous case at uh, the Air Force Academy. Apparently the Air Force Academy has a preparatory school attached to it. This for people who can't get in the ordinary way. And a lot of the people who are in that school are black because they don't have the qualification to get in normally, so they go to this preparatory school. Well, uh, it's a boarding school, and a couple of blacks had uh, uh, racist, uh, anti-black things written on the doors, uh, that sort of thing. Boy, the commandant of the Air Force Academy got everybody together and just chewed them up one side down the other about how racist America was and the Air Force Academy was. When it turned out that that was a hoax. Did he ever apologize? Not that I ever heard of. They never do. Well, they, they, you know, the, you, you bringing that up reminds me of a story I heard recently or in the last couple of years. There was a black girl that was the head of, I don't know, Black Students Union or something like that, some, some organization. And she was getting emails that were threatening her life and calling all sorts of racial epithets and you know, things written on her on her door and her dorm room door and notes slipped under her and and you know her life was in danger right mm -hmm. yeah. well the fbi looked into it and, and they traced all these things back and guess who it came back to <laughs> her her yeah. she was doing it <laughs> yeah that's right the fact is the fact is i can't remember a celebrated hate crime that turned out not to be a hoax in the last several years. Now, yeah, me either. The, at least the ones involving white people. Now, uh, remember, there was this big hullabaloo about anti-Asian hate. And the idea was that although Donald Trump couldn't persuade more than, what, about 10% uh, of black people to vote for him, apparently, if uh, Donald Trump uh, talked about the China virus, uh, that, that apparently drove all of these black people to commit violence against Asians. <laughs> in, in case, right. he, he, Donald Trump is supposed to have uh, unleashed this huge anti-Asian wave of violence by talking about the China virus. But as it turns out, uh, practically, I think in every case in which a perpetrator was identified, uh, it was a black guy. And to me, one of the most surprising things about that is, and this shows the extent to which a certain number of young Asians have swallowed all this anti-white nonsense too, they defended the blacks and said that they were essentially acting out internalized white supremacy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so crazy. It is utterly crazy. There was a real generational divide, as I recall. And I remember seeing a couple of young Asian hotheads uh, being interviewed in which they say, uh, you know, my, my, I, I just have a terrible time explaining to my parents that this is a problem with white people. It's not a problem with black people. You, you know, I saw a video of uh, there was a bunch of students around and they were talking about racism and this and that. And they were, <laughs> they were passing the mic off to people. And this little Asian girl, I don't know if she's Chinese, Japanese, Korean, I, I don't know. But she got on the microphone and she said, yeah, you know, people are yelling 
uh, I want to, ha- you know, I've got Asian fever. I want to have sex with an Asian girl or they're, they're saying go home. But then she revealed all the people that are saying this were black and they, they snatched the microphone away from her. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, that reminds me also, there was some uh, old feminist video. It was taken by a reasonably attractive young uh, She looked like kind of a Hispanic woman who was walking through Manhattan. And she had, either she had a video camera in a backpack or somebody was following at a distance. And the idea was to just catch the people who are making cat calls and show how chauvinist and how disrespectful of woman American society is. Practically every one of those people was black or Hispanic. There was, I don't remember seeing a single white person making one of these vulgar remarks. But uh, uh, I don't know if that video is even available anymore. Because, oh, I've seen it. Yeah. Oh, you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yep. Were there any white people? Maybe they were, but they sure didn't stand out. Uh, I didn't I see mean, any. Yeah. Yeah. No. And then the question becomes, uh, how is it? Now, I mean, do the people who set the agenda, do the people who decide what to choose as news stories on the networks and the people who write the New York Times, do they not see what you and I see? Are they actually ignorant or do they see it all, but they deliberately and consciously hide it? I don't know. Yeah, do I, I I, I, I don't know. I, I don't see how they couldn't see it. But then again, <laughs> yeah. then again, when people argue adamantly that you can that you can uh, not only do you not have to ha- have your genitals removed, but you yeah. can just say you're a woman and you're a woman. <laughs> right. I, I don't know how that's possible. Uh, but- life is full of mysteries. Uh, well, then, of course, uh, the most remarkable cases are the ones in which well, we had one uh, recently in uh, the county next to ours, Loudoun County, Virginia. There was this high school kid who claimed to be a woman, and uh, he was in uh, women's locker rooms, and he ended up uh, raping a girl in one school, and he was transferred to another, and he, and he raped yet another one before somebody finally did something about this, and people got in trouble for allowing this. And then they're the women, they're, they're the so-called women who go to jail and they insist they're women. So they're put in the women's, uh, women's jail. And of course, they end up raping women. Yep. It, uh, I, 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 I'm with you on this. How can anyone, how can anyone possibly justify this? It, uh, it's, it's bewildering. Of course, to me, as I said before, I've been involved in the whole racial question for 30 years now, and it's become difficult for me to understand how people can fall for that. But the whole question of men being women and women and men being basically the same, uh, that to me is even more preposterous. Yeah, I agree. You know, my, your change was a little bit later in life. My change was when I, when I, was, a, when I was a young kid, I grew up in an all-white neighborhood. And I bought into the whole black people are oppressed, people are mean to them, why do they treat them like that? Yep. And I was a kid, yep. you know, I was a little kid. Yes. As I became a teenager, I started going to high school, junior high and high school, and I had interactions with black people. Yes. And uh, I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, oh, oh yes. I really had no idea. <laughs> so well, the idea that people say that uh, bigotry or, you know, or what's called bigotry is due to ignorance. And not in my case. In my case, my, in my case, I it was it was and you know it was interaction that changed my mind. 
Well, you see, you had the advantage of certain kind of contact that I did not. As I say, I grew up in Japan. I was there until I was uh, uh, college age. And then I went to Yale University. There were blacks on campus. And some of them were rather hostile, surprisingly hostile. I had had no interaction with blacks at all. Uh, but I, it didn't make me think that uh, what we're told about the oppressive society of the United States is all baloney. But I was surprised that the hostility that I saw was not from whites to blacks, but really from blacks to whites. But it didn't really change my basic way of thinking. And it really, and then after that, uh, I had various jobs that did not require any contact with blacks. Uh, so it was only gradually over a number of years that I began to shed my egalitarian illusions. But it took a long time. I was pretty boneheaded about it. Uh, but at the time, I went to college in 1968. Everybody was super liberal. It, you had to be an original thinker or somebody with simply more intellectual curiosity and nonconformity than I was capable of mustering to be anything but a liberal. I'm kind of ashamed of myself, but everybody else is in the same boat. I wish I'd been able to see through it earlier, but it just took a lot longer than it should have. Hey, you know what? But you're, you know what? You're the strongest, most, most salient voice on the, on the, on, you know, in Western civilization when it comes to this. But by far. And I'm, oh, you're, I, you're I'm worried kind. because, you know, no offense to you, but nobody lives forever. And I just don't know who's going to be the next Jared Taylor. I just don't I just don't know who it would be. Oh, there's some there's some good there's some good guys out there. Uh, some of my staff are really pretty smart fellows. There's a fellow who writes uh, under the name of Gregory Hood. Uh, uh, he doesn't have quite, uh, he doesn't have a video or interview presence that I do, but if you were to interview him, you'd find that uh, he's a very, very sharp, well-spoken guy. Uh, it, it, is, it is a frustration to me that despite the fact that uh, I express myself, I think, in extremely reasonable, data-based, fair-minded ways that I have been so systematically cut off from all of the normal platforms. We, we had a great YouTube channel for as long as it lasted. I had a great uh, Twitter account for as long as it lasted. Uh, Facebook, uh, all of those things are closed to me. And to me, it is a sign of just how terrified the other side is. They profess to believe in freedom of speech, but if what I say is so stupid and wrong, shouldn't any uh, C average high school student be able to refute me top to bottom? I mean, what are they really afraid of? What are they worried about? And it seems to me it really is an admission that they cannot refute what I and others like me say. But if they know they can't refute what I say, shouldn't that leave them with some gnawing suspicion that I might be right? It, uh, I just don't know. I would love to have a conversation with some of these liberals who make decisions of this kind. I mean, again, really, if I'm so spectacularly wrong, I should be easy to refute. But uh, that's you, not you know, I, I liked what Russian had to say, but he just didn't have he wasn't as charismatic as you are. Oh, well, you're very kind. Uh, uh, I don't know. It, but, well, it is certainly true that the way in which things are put makes a huge, huge difference. I remember, uh, I'm, I'm going to get these proportions wrong, but they are largely, uh, I think they're largely correct, and they're just theoretical proportions anyway. But 
when you make an argument, it's uh, 50%, uh, it, it's 50% how you look, uh, 30% how you say it, and only 20% what you say. I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. And uh, that's just the way human beings are. We logic, just pure logic, doesn't really change that many people's minds. And in that context, I'll tell you about a feature that we've had on the American Renaissance website for a long time now. And this is first person accounts of how people achieved a dissident view of race. And I first started soliciting these because I wanted to know what are the arguments that people find effective. And I was hoping that people would say, okay, now I read this book and it made this argument. Or I saw these crime statistics and, it, and the light bulb went off. For so many of them, what really opened their eyes was my sister was raped or I was mugged or I was in the army and I saw the way those black people stole and goofed off on KP. It was almost never an argument. It was some kind of personal experience. And that's too bad. It's really too bad. I've had very few negative experiences with black people. Maybe if I had had your experiences in high school, I would have come to a realistic understanding of race sooner than I did. It took me till I was mid thirties or maybe late thirties really to get a, uh, uh, a genuine understanding of what was going on. But that's the way human beings work. Now, I tend to like data. I like uh, arguments that are based on the facts and that's the kind of thing that I write, but in my experience, some of the most persuasive things that we've ever published are first-person accounts of someone like a social worker, for example, or a public defender, or a police officer, describing what they have lived through. Human beings are very interested in personal anecdotes, what my neighbor has experienced. I may be somewhat more rationalistic or colder in that respect. Human anecdotes don't interest me so much as the statistical facts that surround that human anecdote. But uh, that's, what, that's one of the things that makes our job difficult, is if we approach things in a logical way. I suppose it's like you as an atheist. If you're talking to a believer and you're trying to explain why you're an atheist, you're not going to get through because facts aren't relevant. And that is so often the case when we're talking to an egalitarian fanatic. The facts don't matter. And even if the facts are irrefutable, they will simply change the subject. It, uh, it's very frustrating on those rare occasions where I can actually talk to somebody like that. Yeah, I, I, I almost never, I almost never uh, talk about my atheism. The only reason why I'm, I, I label myself conservative atheist is because every time I would talk to a, a conservative, they would think I was a Christian. And every oh. time I talked to an atheist, they would think I was, a, you know, if they knew I was an atheist, they would think I was a liberal. And so I kind of put it there so that, you know, a little shorthand, they, they know exactly I what see. I am. It's pretty clear. But, uh, mm. you know, mm. I, I, I'm a pragmatist. I'm more worried about um, do we agree on how things should be? now than what happens when we die well i think it is well uh presumably you are concerned about what the world will be like after you die I right mean, i don't know if you have children no but uh no children well even if you don't have children uh i think that we all have an obligation to future generations i think the world 
can be a much better place. And even if I'm not around to enjoy the goodness of it, I want the world to be fair-minded. And I also want the world to have as many beautiful, wonderful things in it as possible. And we're moving very much in the opposite direction. Western civilization, which I think has been this wonderful contribution to human achievement and human culture, is now denigrated in this vicious way. Western civilization is going to decline unless we put the brake on things. And now we have this celebration of all of these queer transsexuals who are supposed to think fat people are beautiful. (laughs) Yes, pretty soon it's going to get to the point where we're supposed to think that good-looking people are somehow oppressors because of that. I mean, it could go in any kind of direction. Even after I'm gone, though, I want the world to be a beautiful, fair-minded place. So even if I didn't have children, I think I would be devoted to this cause. I started doing this uh, well before I had children. And um, why don't you have children? (laughs) Why don't I have children? You know, because because when I was younger, I was kind of a wild guy, and I dated a lot of women. And I just didn't feel like I was responsible enough. And, 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 you know, at a certain point, I said, okay, well, you know, I'm just too old. I'm 52 now. I turned 52 back Mm. in November. And so Mm. at a certain point, you know what I mean? It wouldn't be right to the kid. I would love to have a child right now. But is it really right to have the kid? And then, by, you know, let's say magically I had a kid right now. You know, by the time I'm 72, they're 20. <laughs> you know, it, well, it just doesn't seem fair to the child. And so well, to me, it's more uh, about the child than, than about me. Well, of course, uh, it requires a, uh, a co-conspirator in this, in right. this uh, little undertaking. I had my youngest child when I was 50. And that's old. Uh, I would not recommend that. But it's been a wonderful, wonderful thing. I, w- I have only two children. I wish I had maybe five. That, that's the greatest regret in my life is not having had more children. But uh, if you have no children, I won't, uh, uh, I won't belabor that point too much. Well, I regret it. I regret it. I'm not going to I won't, I won't, I won't deny it. I, I, I regret the fact that uh, I haven't had children. But it just hasn't worked out. And I didn't want to be one of those situations where, you know, I was divorced or I was estranged yeah. from the mother. And I, yeah. I just didn't yeah. want that. No, those are those are tragic things. It really is unfortunate. Sometimes I think that, well, the sexual revolution probably, well, when you're a young man, the sexual revolution is great because <laughs> right. you're having yes. But uh, as I reflect on it now, I think that the Victorian view of sex was certainly vastly healthier for society at large. And it meant men had to give up a lot of things. They had to give up uh, the excitement and the pleasure of having sex with a lot of different women, which is uh, what we are biologically geared to do. But I think it was ultimately certainly better for families and better for society. But uh, that's another uh, another genie that would be very, very difficult to put back in the bottle. It's very hard to imagine society in which uh, what we used to charmingly refer to as premarital sex was considered taboo. It'd be very hard to imagine that. Oh, I, I'm I'm all for the nuclear family, and I think traditional male female roles are the way to go. Yes, yes. Uh, I really do. I think it's the best for the children. I think it's better for the family. I think it's best for society. Well, part of me is always agree. Yes. Well, part of me part of me is always wondered with like a, almost like Eric Kaufman's analysis that uh, you're eventually the people that are going to have kids. It's going to be people that are religious. I mean, it's something like uh, I forget what it, what it was shown that something like I think it's like if if uh, the trajectory stays that. Uh, 
the Amish are going to be like 200 million by the year 2022 or 2200. <laughs> How many Orthodox Jews will there be? A hundred million probably. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, it's that, yeah. Catholics too. <laughs> well, it's yeah. funny. That, uh, I've even heard someone like uh, Richard Nina make this point that, uh, okay, well, this is absolutely awful. And I, I hate a lot of the stuff that comes from the culture war from the left, but ultimately it's not going to matter because one, the reason why these people are doing it is probably just because they're devoid of meaning in their life, probably from not having kids and living kind of conventional ways. And they're just not going to be the ones having kids. So culture is going to change. I mean, it's kind of like Israel today, where something like 70% of the youth now identify as right wing. Mm. Well, uh, I don't want to wait. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, me either. Uh, it, it could, in the long term, that could happen. People have argued that if it is true that... Um, the inclination to have children or the likelihood to have large families is a heritable characteristic, then those who don't have that heritable characteristic are not going to have children and they'll be bred out of the population. And so that this terrible population slump that uh, practically all white populations are involved in will eventually work its way out. I don't know. Of course, when it comes to the business of not having babies, the East Asians are even better at it than we are. I think that in Hong Kong and Singapore, the um, uh, total fertility per woman is, it hovers around one. And at that rate, uh, every generation, the population drops in half, for heaven's sake. But uh, Ukraine, of course, where the war is going on now, uh, the total fertility per woman is something like one point, uh, the last figure is 1.26. I suspect this year it will drop below one because of the terrible disruption of the war. But white people better shake a leg, so to speak, and start having babies, or even without immigration, we'll just glimmer away. And uh, it, it always uh, it strikes me as so intriguing that so many government and non-governmental organizations are very, very concerned about the potential extinction of various species. If you have a little insect known as the Kreshmar cave mold beetle on your property, you can't build because you might be disturbing the environment of this wonderful creature. But nobody's, nobody seems to officially care about the fact that uh, white people are slowly going extinct. That's uh, something about which we're not supposed to have the slightest concern. Oh, it's supposed to be celebrated. <laughs> You're right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I, wish, I wish that it was just indifference. <sighs> indifference would, indifference would, be, would be refreshing. It's not indifference. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's promoted. It's it's yes. it's not just condoned. It's it's uh, celebrated and and uh, seen as a good thing. You're right. You're right. Uh, I'm reminded of a woman by the name of Julie Porter. Uh, you probably are not familiar with her, but no. she gained a certain kind of notoriety because she tried to cook every one of the 534 recipes in the Julia Child cookbook in a small New York City apartment in one year. And this was, uh, she kept, uh, she wrote about this, and this became uh, uh, a kind of a cause celebre in certain circles. And uh, a movie was made of this starring Meryl Streep as uh, Julia Child and some other relatively famous actress as uh, the younger woman, Julie Porter. Well, she died a couple of months ago, and I was going through her Twitter account, and she was clearly a liberal. But there were a number of tweets in it that quite shocked me. She said something like, uh, I can see the argument why white people should just be all murdered. 
And she wow. said, I said, I wouldn't want it necessarily to happen to my family, but uh, there, there are reasons to think that it would be got a good idea for just for us just to be slaughtered in the streets. And I'm thinking, what, what on earth? Why, why would a not obviously insane white person talk in these terms? And it's all part of the incredible sickness of our times. And it would be one thing to say that white people have been taught to hate themselves. And yet, I think at some level, they are, they are very proud of themselves for saying things like this. And when they say white people should be slaughtered, they're not talking about the liberals who live in New York City. They're talking about all those rubes out in flyover country and people who voted for Donald Trump. That was another thing about her Twitter feed. She clearly thought that anybody who voted for Donald Trump was just an inexcusable moron and moral defective. But this idea this, uh, that, uh, that a woman would say such a thing, I think only a white person and only a white person living in this current era of insanity would, would say such a thing about her own group. But we're back to the original question. Where has this come from? Where has this come from? This utterly unnatural libido for contempt for one's own people. It's, it's a mysterious thing to me. So let, let me ask you, um, what, what, uh, how has this had an effect on your personal life? I know you said that um, you've, you've lost some, um, oh, uh, some career opportunities because of this. But I know that a lot of countries like to ban people from coming into their country, <laughs> yes, which is, which is ridiculous. That's true. It, uh, well, I would say there are three general areas in which I may have paid a price. Well, I certainly paid the price in uh, my consulting business dried up. Uh, I, uh, I'm pretty good at what I do and speaking fluent Japanese and French was, was very useful. But the word began to get out that uh, this tailor was uh, uh, a SPLC certified white supremacist and people stopped hiring me. Uh, fortunately, by then, I had built up my organization, American Renaissance, to the point where uh, it could pay me a, a modest salary, not, not like what I was earning as a consultant. And I kind of miss all the business class travel I used to make and uh, staying in the first class hotels, things like that. But, you know, uh, you can live without all that. Uh, so that's that's one price I've paid. Another price is uh, my, my children. They usually it's uh, it's been about middle school. Somebody tumbles to the fact that uh, daddy is uh, known as a white supremacist, and so the word gets around the classroom, and they pass around these. Uh, uh, URLs as if they were dirty pictures or something, but uh, they, my daughters pretty much shrugged that off. Uh, they love me and I love them. And uh, I remember uh, my older daughter, uh, uh, when she refused the amorous advances of uh, some guy in college, uh, he started sending all this stuff around to their mutual acquaintances. Uh, her attitude was, uh, well, I won't, uh, her, her, her attitude was unprintable. But uh, it, <laughs> right. it was very, it was very healthy. It was very, healthy. yes. Uh, so uh, that, that's that's been something. And then, of course, uh, it's very frustrating to try to get an idea out and then to be considered so morally inferior that you have to be shut up. Uh, that that that's. Uh, but that's that's just 
part of the job. I never expected it to be part of the job, but but that is. And then there have been some uh, old friends who have dropped me, but uh, the rewards are, are manifold. One is I've made all sorts of wonderful new friends. And I have the satisfaction of doing what I conceive of as my duty. And that may be a corny thing to say, but uh, doing something that you think is what you were put on earth to do and devoting your life to it is, is a very rewarding and satisfying thing. Yeah, well, you definitely were put on this earth for this. <laughs> I, I, honestly, for, for uh, those were... of you that are hearing me say this and you think that, oh, my God, this guy is such, such a fan and, and he's, he's sucking up to Jared Taylor. I am <laughs> such a fan and I am sucking up to Jared Taylor. So oh, <laughs> guilty oh. as charged. Oh, I am a God. huge fan. This Jared Taylor is one. I mean, I can't think of anything that I've heard come up out of his mouth that I've disagreed with. The only thing that I, I remember you having one conversation about something about you'd like um, maybe a, a set aside for uh, certain areas for black people set aside for certain areas for white people. Oh, well, I, I don't know if you remember saying that, or if you actually said that, or maybe I misunderstood. Well, the, the whole question of how to solve this problem Ultimately, ultimately, to me, the real issue is the survival of my people and culture. And how do we bring that about? And I think within the given political structure and boundaries of the United States, I just don't see how that will happen, at least here. I don't want to give up on the United States of America. The first Taylor showed up here in 1635. And we've voted in every election. We've fought in every war. This land is drenched with our blood, stuffed with our bones. I'm about as American as it's possible to be. But I don't want to turn my back on my ancestral homeland. But it may be that in the long term, Western civilization and European civilization are doomed here. I don't want to think that. But if they are not to be doomed, what do we do? As I said before, I don't think it's possible to restore a healthy way of thinking about race at the national level. And so if my people and culture have any hope in the next 100 years, 200 years on the North American continent, I think the only solution is some kind of disengagement. Is that possible? I don't know. But I think that's the only solution. And so I am a great fan of any kind of secession movement. I think these days the United States government would not go to war to maintain the territorial integrity of the United States the way it did in 1861. And I think at the local level, white people could coalesce in ways so that uh, they could uh, run the city council or the school board and uh, uh, they could be in charge of the public school education. I think that, could, that sort of thing can be done and it could be a nucleus. Now, I don't believe in any kind of forced expulsion of people, I do, but I do believe in complete freedom of association and voluntary, and voluntary association, voluntary separation. And I think that's something that a great many people of all races actually prefer. If, this, if our government were not in the business of constantly trying to force people together, but recognize that, well, yes, this is one nation, but that it is legitimate for people of any race to prefer to live in a racially coherent society or neighborhood or institution or school, that there's nothing wrong with that. I think that that would be the way to solve our problems. 
a recognition that if this were to be seen in terms of a marriage, we have irreconcilable differences and we need a divorce. As you know, for centuries, divorce was out of the question. And in Catholic countries, only recently has it become possible. But sometimes there are irreconcilable differences. And I would say that after 400 years of living together, certainly blacks and whites have irreconcilable differences and we're better off apart. In terms of the practicalities of bringing about this kind of separation, I'd be the first to admit there are all sorts of problems, but where there is a will, as Abraham Lincoln said, there's a way. Right. I completely agree. I, I don't know how it would happen because if you set aside like a state or two, uh, say for black territory, there would be incursions into the into the cities and towns and homes along the border. Um, there would be constant complaining that uh, the reason why it wasn't successful is because of uh, slavery and racism. And, yes, and that, right. uh, you know, they would constantly argue that for more federal funds and it would yep. just be nonstop, nonstop uh, issues. But would that be worse than what we have today? I believe uh, I that if whites, if whites had the op- had the option of living in a white affirming environment, that they might be willing to pay a certain supplement in income taxes just to make sure that they were able to preserve that. Now, to me, the people who suffer most from this persistent anti-white attitude are not people like me. I have a network of friends. I know what's going on. And I have the mental capacity to build a kind of psychological fortress around my identity as a white person. The people who suffer most are lower and middle class, working class white people. They are never going to read the bell curve. And they're probably never even going to read Amran.com. And they deserve to live in a country that does not treat them like dirt, the way our, our country te- treats white people in general, but particularly middle class or working class Trump voters. I mean, in the United States today, those are the people that you can make fun of, you can insult them, you can wish they were dead. And this, to me, is a horrible, horrible tragedy. And those are the people who, as I say, don't have the psychological capacity to defend themselves. But ordinary citizens in a nation shouldn't need that kind of capacity. Every nation should be built in a way that affirms the people who are part of that nation. And we don't have that. And the people who suffer worst are the people who don't have the money to buy themselves into a whiteopia, who have to send their children to these multiracial schools where their white kids get beaten up and insulted and their lunch money's shaken down. Those people are the real tragic victims of our nation turning its back on the founding racial stock. Well, one of, the, one of the things that disturbed me was if you look on Wikipedia, and I was just curious what P- Wikipedia had to say about you and a few other people that I've, that I've interviewed, and they are supposedly, um, you know, they're not biased, yet, <laughs> yet, yet they have horrible things to say about you, and they say it as if that's, it's fact. White supremacist, right. this and that, yep. and it's, it's just, it's just a character assassination, and, and all stated if, if it's fact. What would well, you what would you label yourself as, if you had to? Well, I have uh, I have two terms that I use. One is that I'm a race realist and a white advocate. The term white supremacist is particularly annoying, 
because whatever a white supremacist is, presumably, uh, I would think that the correct definition of it is someone who wants to rule over non-white people. White supremacy was a historical phenomenon. It was part of the motivation or part of the justifications of the colonial enterprise in Africa, for example. Whites were bringing right. civilization to the Africans, uh, that they believed it, uh, they were doing it, and that was all part of the colonial undertaking. I don't want to rule over non-whites. I don't know anybody who does. Uh, and to, to use the term white supremacist, I think it is meant to evoke such things as slavery or colonization or Jim Crow, lynching, it is the most emotionally charged and loaded term with which I believed to smear or slur a white person. And that's why people love to use it. Even if by white supremacy, people mean that it is someone who thinks that white people are better than people of other races. That doesn't apply to me either. Objectively, East Asians, they have higher average IQ, they have lower crime rates, greater ability to defer gratification, lower illegitimacy rates. You could objectively describe them as superior to whites. I have no problem with that. It doesn't mean that I want to be Asian or that I want to turn the country over to Asians. Asians are different from my people. And uh, I would have to say, yes, I do like my people best. But if that's some sort of sin, then the people of virtually every race, nationality, community, university, they're all guilty of it. Well, it's like so, it's like loving your family. It's like loving your children more than you love somebody else's children. It doesn't mean you exactly hate the right. other person's children or you don't yeah. you know care about the other person's children. You just love your family more. That's right. That's right. It's the most natural, normal, healthy thing in the world. So yes, Wikipedia annoys me in that respect. The other thing that annoys me is they uh, they accuse me of uh, of uh, believing in white genocide theory. Uh, I don't, I mean, I'm not sure what they mean by white genocide theory, but I suppose that's the idea that people are out there trying to make sure that, uh, deliberately trying to make sure white people disappear. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that is happening. Maybe there are some people, as you say, some people do rejoice in the idea that white people are dwindling in numbers, but there's no conspiracy out there of people are saying, okay, what's the next thing we can do to, to make sure more white people die? That's <laughs> right. not happening. That's just not right. happening. And I don't know where they got this cuckoo idea that uh, I'm an advocate of that. that. That's just something that's outright obviously wrong. But then everything else is all innuendo and I'm just a bad, bad, bad guy. They quote all these people who say I'm wretched and practically nobody who, uh, why, why don't they quote... Uh, uh, the conservative atheist. Uh, that'd be nice. So. But, yeah, uh, you, you know what? You would have glowing reviews. They would. They would. Uh, yeah, they would. They would ask yeah. you if you walked on water. If you're, they're talking to me. <laughs> but no, they'll never ask you. They'll never ask you. No, it. Uh, Wikipedia is very, very unreliable on anything having to do with race. It. Uh, there is something called cold winters theory that is used to explain the evolutionary forces that resulted in average, higher average IQs for East Asians and for whites as compared to Southeast Asians or Africans. And they used to have a page devoted to it. That page has been completely taken down now. Of rather than Yes, rather than explain that they've set out the theory that if they want to refute it, 
please refute it. Please point out what's wrong with the theory. That's good for those theories, to have people point out holes in them. But no, they don't do that. They have just completely taken the page away. That's the way Wikipedia operates when it comes to anything having to do with race or the genetics of personality. Otherwise, I think Wikipedia is a, a hugely useful resource. I just wish that it didn't have this awful blind spot. Well, I, I think I think it's obvious that if if you're dealing with cold weather, if you're dealing with in climate weather, you have to you have to your brain is like a muscle. You have to come up with ways to overcome the cold and, and the scarcity of food during the wintertime. If you live yes. in a lush jungle, you don't have to do that. That's right. That's right. You never have to learn to, to make a needle and thread because you don't have to sew skins together to stay warm. You don't have to store food in the winter because uh, there's going to be food all year round falling off the trees and growing on the on the bushes. Uh, no, it seems quite obvious to me. But no. Uh, and, and at one time they had a fairly detailed account of that. And uh, uh, the original cold, a cold winter's theory goes all the way back to Herodotus. It's not as though it's a new idea, but Richard Lynn is one of the people who has uh, who developed it in an extremely logical, straightforward way. And then one of the holes in cold weather theory, that cold winters theory, I'm sorry, that uh, the skeptics pointed out is, well, OK, if that's the case, how come Eskimos aren't the smartest people in the world? And clearly, Eskimos have been in very cold weather long enough for their bodies, as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, to have been adopted, to, to have adapted in a way to conserve heat. But also, they can live practically year-round on animal blubber. That's a diet that might not be healthy for other people, but they've adapted to that. So they've been there a long time. How come they're not, how come they're not the smart? How come they're not the smartest people in the world? Well, as it turns out, they have very, very highly developed spatial navigational abilities. They can pick their way through what appears to non-Eskimos as an utterly, utterly trackless, snowy wilderness. So they have definitely developed that kind of ability. But one reason that they may not have developed any kind of really spectacular material culture or a really high IQ is, one, there just were never that many of them. And it takes a certain number in a population to come up with the mutations that lead to higher intelligence. And the other is that just from a material point of view, there, when you don't, don't have trees and don't have any obvious source of metals, that is going to hold back certainly your cultural development. But I would say that of all the phenomena that cold winter's theory attempts to explain, it is the relatively low IQs of Eskimos that is probably the, the biggest flaw. And it's important for people who object to a theory to have an opportunity to point out its flaws. And if those flaws can be explained or can't be explained, that's a very important thing. But simply to take down the page, just burn the books, in effect. We're all supposed to look back on uh, Nazi book burning as a horrible thing, which it was. But we practice that all the time. You can't buy my books on Amazon. It, uh, it's all part of this, this absurd attempt to shut up people if you cannot refute them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the interesting thing is the Eskimos have actually developed a fat pad layer under their skin to protect them from the cold that other human beings don't have. Yes, um, yes. And, and dolphins are a good, another good example. They're extremely intelligent, but they're limited 
and what they can do because of the very reason you gave, because they don't have any resources. It's water. It's there's yes. limitations to their environment. Yes, yes. Uh, whereas Africans would not have faced those same limitations, and the African continent, under the tutelage of whites, so be they be the uh, colonizers, or in the case of South Africa or Rhodesia. Now, Rhodesia is another great example. That was a wonderfully successful country while the whites were running it. Now it's just a pathetic, miserable, terrible basket case. Uh, this pattern has repeated itself over and over and over. But there's nothing wrong with Africa. And I hate to put it as bluntly as this. What's wrong with Africans is the fact that it is occupied I'm sorry, what's wrong with Africa is the, the, the people who live there. If it were in the hands of the East Asians, for example, imagine what the Japanese would do with a continent like that, or the Chinese. They're going to kind of sink their claws into that place. If, they, if it were really up to them, they would turn it into an absolute uh, industrial powerhouse. <clears throat> agreed. Absolutely agreed. Um, so I, I think I've I think I've ran out of questions, actually. And, um, <laughs> well, just as well, because I've, I've, I've run out of smart things to say. So. <laughs> I find that very difficult to believe. So well, after about an hour, I start running out of interesting and smart things to say. Brighter so. later, did you have anything you'd like to ask or anything you'd like to add before we, before we uh, wrap this up with Mr. Taylor? Yes, I have uh, one more question. I was wondering, uh, I've heard the theory stated that uh, why uh, a lot of our elites won't accept to uh, I guess innate racial or I guess innate racial differences is because they think that, okay, well, if that's true, then it's ultimately going to give credence or it's ultimately going to lead to some sort of Nazism. And that's really what you, that's really what's going to happen. It's just going to be some sort of like innate eugenics uh, program. And that's how you have to respond. I don't know if you've ever thought, I don't know what your yes. response on something like that is. Yes. I've, I, I've heard that view and it reminds me of a conversation I had years ago in California. I was at a party and it was full of people I didn't know. And I started talking to an uh, unattractive young lady. And for some reason, the conversation turned to racial differences in IQ. I don't know. I mean, I'm not the kind of guy who just automatically brings this up. And I don't remember how we got onto that. But uh, she seemed interested. And so, although she was a liberal, I started laying out the arguments and the evidence. Uh, and uh, as I got along, she says, well, if that's true, We'll just have to exterminate them all, talking about black people. I, I said, well, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, no. That, that doesn't follow logically at all. But I think that that is a not uncommon reaction. And what I do is I point out that <clears throat> up until perhaps uh, the 1940s or 50s, it was taken for granted that on average, uh, blacks were less intelligent than whites. But nobody said, okay, the solution is to kill them all, or the solution is to make them stop breeding, or anything like that. No. There were, there were attempts. There were certainly, uh, back in the uh, 19th century, the American Colonization Society, their idea was to prepare some kind of overseas homeland for blacks and send freed slaves outside of the United States. Uh, that was Thomas Jefferson's solution to the race problem. He wanted to send blacks beyond the, re the, beyond the reach of mixture, as he called it. But there has, uh, I don't know of any person in the history of the United States who has any kind of prominence or credibility who ever 
was going to be eugenicist on, a, on strictly racial lines. Now, don't forget that in the 1920s and 30s, the entire United States was eugenicist. There were eugenic, eugenical congresses held in the U.S. And the idea was uh, that uh, human beings were just like goats or cattle or racehorses, that uh, you got more of uh, what you bred. And so there were even... Uh, Oh, at, at, uh, at uh, county fairs, you might see exhibits of photographs of uh, uh, the, the, eugenically, the eugenically superior families. This is all part of, uh, part of American society. And by the way, it was considered a leftist. This was considered a progressive approach. This is not considered conservative at all. The conservatives, the religious conservatives in particular, were very unwilling to go along with this stuff. They said, this is all in the hands of God, and this is playing God, and this is no good. But uh, all the liberals, the socialists, the socialists uh, tended, tended to be eugenicists. But uh, I think that that is very much a false fear that that would not be the reaction. In fact, if it were recognized that the races simply were not dealt the same genetic hand, I can actually imagine people then saying that we have all the greater reason for affirmative, affirmative action. Yeah. It is not their fault. It's not their fault that they have an average IQ of 85. And so we must boost them up in every way possible. But the idea that, what? Average IQ of 85? Well, kill them all. No, no. That, that, and for them to even think in those terms, to me, uh, that signifies a kind of a bloodthirsty barbarism that I, I, I have a hard time imagining. But may, maybe it is deep down inside. Maybe that is the way liberals think. It certainly was uh, the reaction to this liberal girl I was talking to in California. So I say it quite shocked me. Well, I, I think it's I think I think the bottom line is, is that that neither you or I want to rule over anybody. And mm. the idea that that we want people to uh, to, to, to we want black people or anybody else to fail. That, that doesn't help anybody. Would I rather no. a black guy be a be a, a doctor or a lawyer or a physicist or would i rather him be out there robbing and raping and stealing of course uh, I, I want black people to be the best possible black people they can be and they're not going to be the best possible black people they can be living in a society in which they're convinced they're being oppressed and held back at every turn i want black people to build wakanda if they can god bless them <laughs> but uh, no no I, I wish everyone well and i guess i would also add that i'm a great believer in true diversity I think diversity comes from maintaining differences. Imagine what would be happening to Japan or, or India or Turkey if their populations were being diluted and mixed the ways, the ways, uh, in, in the ways that our population is being mixed. Japan, which is a country I know very well, I think it's made marvelous, marvelous contributions to the world culture. Just Japanese food alone is a wonderful gift to humanity. But if Japan gets filled up with all sorts of contending people of different races, who is going to carry Japanese society forward in a meaningful way? The wonderful diversity and unique features of Japan that I love and that so many people love, that'll just be washed away in this multi-hued blob that would overtake Japan, which is what's, the, what's happening in the United States. So it's only through some kind of maintaining of boundaries and borders that truly beautiful and distinctive cultures can survive.
Well, yeah, I keep hearing I keep hearing liberals talk about how, well, we're all going to have sex and we're all going to interbreed and eventually we'll all be one race. And won't that be a great thing? Well, <laughs> if that's your goal, what, whatever happened to diversity? That's the elimination. If you eliminate yes. if you eliminate physical diversity and you eliminate yeah. cultural diversity, yeah. then, you know, what what, 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 what what are we talking about here? Well, that's exactly right, because these days, diversity is just a code word for too many whites. Right. And I want to thank Mr. Jared Taylor for joining us today. We had a lively discussion about race relations in the United States and around the world uh, from a perspective you rarely get to hear. I think this man has been wrongly uh, characterized as a white supremacist. He's obviously not that. And it's sad that people have to demonize people they disagree with politically. And it's sad that people consider certain opinions uh, taboo and unspeakable. There are no unspeakable opinions. There are no unspeakable positions. If you disagree, disagree. But don't try to silence other people. That being said, I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. This was my favorite interview of all time and probably will remain so for the remainder of my time doing podcasts. Uh, Again, I want to thank Mr. Taylor for showing up and for being a part of the podcast. It was an excellent interview. If you enjoyed this interview or you enjoy any of our other broadcasts, please, please subscribe to the podcast, listen to more. Uh, we drop a podcast Monday through Friday. In other words, uh, you know, Sunday night into Monday morning after 12.01 a.m. Monday morning, Eastern Standard Time or New York City Time, however you prefer it. And the last one drops Thursday night into Friday morning after 12.01 a.m. Friday morning. Eastern Standard Time, or again, as I said before, uh, New York City time, if you prefer. And they last anywhere from one hour to two hours to three hours, depending on the topic we're discussing and the guests that we're interviewing, as well as many other factors. We try to give you the best possible conversations on the, on the most interesting topics. Uh, and uh, I think we do a fairly good job. We do, we do the best we can do. And uh, so hopefully you've enjoyed it the way we have. Um, we also have a, a Patreon. The Patreon, it, it, you get all sorts of perks and merchandise, and you also get uh, you know video podcasting, so you get to see what we look like for whatever that's worth, and uh, bonus episodes. So that you know the the link to the Patreon is going to be in the description of every single podcast that we do, and it starts out at five dollars a month, which is pennies a day, and it goes up from there. And again, you get all sorts of perks and merchandise and bonus material. So if you want to support the podcast in that way, that would be wonderful. If not, please still continue to listen to what we what we produce for free on over 50 platforms and heard in over 50 countries around the world. All right. I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, take care. One last thing before I let you go. Tonight, when you're laying flat on your back in the dark, in your bed, staring up at the ceiling, drifting off into sleep, I want you to repeat this mantra over and over and over and over again. Conservative atheist is always right. Conservative atheist is always right. Conservative atheist is always right. Conservative atheist is always right.
And in the morning when you wake up, you're going to feel like a refreshed, renewed person. The sun is going to shine brighter. The air is going to feel crisper. The flowers are going to smell sweeter. And the birds are going to sing your name. And all will be right with the world. And if not, then maybe you're denying reality. And you need to listen to more conservative atheist podcasts. And you need to subscribe to American Renaissance and listen to more of what Mr. Jared Taylor has to say so we can set your mind straight. All right, you knuckleheads. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening.